Have you ever come home from a long day just to find out that that meat you needed for your recipe has totally slipped your mind the last time you went to the grocery store? Well, with the help of ButcherBox, you might never have to deal with that problem ever again. With ButcherBox, you get the convenience of having high-quality meat and seafood delivered straight to your door. Not to mention the peace of mind you get to feel knowing that it's 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free. All humanely raised with no antibiotics or added hormones. Let ButcherBox help make your life even easier. No grocery store required. In addition to free shipping on every order, you get to curate your box plans, have access to member-exclusive deals, get recipe ideas and inspiration, as well as helpful tips. You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up for ButcherBox today by going to butcherbox.com morningcup and use the code morningcup at checkout and enjoy your choice of bone-in chicken thighs, top sirloins, or salmon in every box for an entire year. Plus, get $20 off. Again, that's butcherbox.com slash morningcup and use the code morningcup. Question. If I were to ask you right this second to write down all of the subscriptions you pay for each month, would you be able to do it without missing one? It's more difficult than it sounds, especially with so many options and those sneaky free trials that you sometimes forget to cancel. What if I told you I had the perfect solution to help you with this exact problem? Why don't you try Rocket Money? With the help of Rocket Money, I was able to see each and every single subscription I pay for, even the ones I totally forgot I had. I'm sure you've been there too, but Rocket Money can help cancel it with just a few taps. Between streaming platforms, apps, delivery services, and even parenting and kids subscriptions, it's hard to keep track of exactly what you're spending and how much it all adds up to each month. Not to mention the fact that it seems every single day one of those subscriptions suddenly jumps up in price. Rocket Money alerts you when this happens, so you're never caught unawares. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Take control over your finances and with the help of Rocket Money's easy-to-use dashboard, compare your monthly spending and make saving money easier than ever. They'll also try to negotiate lowering your bills up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll even deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash morningcup. That's rocketmoney.com slash morningcup. Rocketmoney.com slash morningcup. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Mental competency to stand trial, while important, can be abused by guilty people who are trying to catch a break. Unfortunately, it's hard to determine who is telling the truth and who is playing the long con. On December 7th, 1993, a man came into a train and killed six people at random. A man who, depending on what you believe, may or may not have been too mentally ill to understand the consequences of his actions. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. 
Colin Ferguson was born on January 14, 1958 in Kingston, Jamaica, to a father who was considered one of the most prominent businessmen in Jamaica. Wanting for nothing, Colin attended Calabar High School, where he was described as a, quote, well-rounded student who kept up his grades and excelled in sports. Then tragedy struck his family. Von Herman, Colin's father, was killed in a car crash when he was just 20 years old. And soon thereafter, his mother lost her battle with cancer. Both deaths destroyed the family, both mentally and financially. At a complete loss with both of his parents gone, Colin moved to the United States in 1982 on a visitor's visa and, four years later, married a woman named Audrey Warren. Now a permanent resident, the new couple moved to Long Island to start their married life together. Almost immediately, the pair were at odds, fighting so viciously that the police were called several times to intervene. On May 18, 1988, just a few days after their second wedding anniversary, Audrey obtained an uncontested divorce on the grounds that they had, quote, differing social views and that Colin was, quote, too aggressive or antagonistic for her. Colin, who had already been struggling with racism in his new country, as well as difficulty getting a well-paying job, crumbled after this final blow to his life. In August of 1989, while doing some clerical work at the Adam Coast Security Group in Syosset, New York, he slipped and fell while standing on a stool and because of his injuries to his head, neck, and back, was terminated from the company. Furious, he filed a complaint with the State Workers' Compensation Agency. While he awaited their ruling, Colin, who had enrolled at the Nassau County Community College and made the dean's list three times, was forced to leave class after a disciplinary hearing board found that he was aggressive towards a teacher. In late 1990, Colin transferred to Adelphi University, where he majored in business administration. It's also a time and place where he spoke out against the coexistence with white people, made consistent calls for a retributive revolution, and accused almost everyone he came into contact with of racism. Most of his complaints were later determined to be unfounded. And while at a symposium where a faculty member was discussing her experiences in South Africa, Colin stood up and began shouting, we should be talking about the revolution in South Africa and how to get rid of the white people and kill everybody white. When students and faculty tried to quiet him down, he threatened them and repeatedly said, the black revolution will get you. He was suspended from school in 1991 as a result. Colin, who seemed to be spiraling out of control, moved to Flatbush, Brooklyn, where, despite his neat appearance and friendly demeanor, the unemployed man was described by some for having delusions of grandeur. A man who believed the one thing holding him back in life was not himself, but the white people as a whole. In 1992, Colin's ex-wife filed a complaint with police claiming he pried open the trunk of her car and that February, he was arrested and charged with harassing a woman on a subway after she politely asked him to move over so she could sit down. He, of course, thought his arrest was little more than another racial slight. He filed a number of complaints, but all were dismissed. Finally, after years of waiting, in September of 1992, Colin Ferguson was awarded just over $26,000 in workman's compensation and in 1993 insisted the pain was still affecting his life and demanded the case to be reopened so he could get a bigger payout. He spent the next few weeks in and out of law firms for consultations. 
with one attorney claiming she felt uncomfortable and threatened immediately upon meeting him and, after a handful of odd behaviors, started making threatening calls to the members of the firm claiming that they were discriminating against him due to his race. The lawyers, terrified, started locking their office doors. The compensation case, which was reopened due to his persistence, was ultimately rejected and Colin was placed on a list of potentially dangerous people whom security needed to keep an eye out for. With this new plan completely dashed, Colin moved out to California in search of a new career opportunity, applying unsuccessfully to a number of jobs. He also picked up a Ruger P89 pistol by presenting himself as a California resident with a license that had the address of the motel that he was staying in, in Long Beach. He moved back to New York a month or so later because, as he told a friend, he didn't like competing with immigrants and Hispanics for a job. According to his Flatbush landlord, this was around the time that Collins seemed to dip deeper and deeper into his mental illness, talking about himself in the third person and ranting about a, quote, apocryphal type doom scenario in which black people rose up and struck down their pompous rulers and oppressors. He was taking five showers a day, chanting at all hours and throwing menacing glares at anyone who dared to look his way. It wasn't long before his landlord, worried about his instability, asked him to move out. And with that, Colin's final very, very thin thread snapped. On December 7th, 1993, at around 5.33 p.m., Colin Ferguson purchased a ticket to board the eastbound train at Flatbush Avenue, heading towards the Jamaica station in Queens. He boarded the third car of the Long Island Railroad commuter train from Penn Station to Hicksville, pushed past the more than 80 other passengers, and sat on the southwestern end of the car carrying an unsuspecting canvas bag. Inside was the Ruger P-89 and about 160 rounds of ammunition. As the train approached Maryland Avenue, Colin pulled out the gun, dropping several cartridges onto the ground, stood up, and opened fire. For the next three minutes, Colin shot passengers at random with some at first thinking some pranksters were setting off fireworks in the back of the train. That was until a woman yelled out, he's got a gun, he's shooting people. Pulling the trigger every half second, Colin made his way through the train while passengers dove under the chairs to try and hide. The shooting was methodical, steady and emotionless with Colin saying, I'm going to get you over and over as he walked down the aisle. Passengers who were further away were unaware of what was happening behind them, with one man getting annoyed when a crowd of panicked commuters pushed past him and tried to force open the door. Two people were injured just during the stampede to safety. The train's conductor was informed of the shooting, but because two of the cars were not yet at the platform, decided against opening the train doors right away. An announcement was made ordering the other conductors to keep the doors closed, but engineer Thomas Silhan, realizing the desperate situation, climbed out of the window of his cab and opened each door from the outside so passengers could escape. As Colin reached for the third 15-round magazine, having emptied the other two, someone still inside of the train yelled, grab him, and passengers Michael O'Connor, Kevin Bloom, and Mark McGenty bravely acted and pinned the gunman to one, of, to one of the train seats. As he was held down, several more joined in to make sure that he could not get back up. As Colin cried out, Oh God, what did I do? 
what did I do? I deserve whatever I get. And pleading with those holding him not to shoot him. Five to six strangers held the dangerous man in place until an off-duty LIRR officer, who was picking up his wife from the train, arrived several minutes later and cuffed him. In total, six people died the day of the Long Island Railroad shooting. They were 27-year-old Amy Federici, 51-year-old James Gorky, 30-year-old Maria Teresa Tumangan Matoto, 52-year-old Dennis McCarthy, 24-year-old Richard Nettleton, and 27-year-old Mi Kyung Kim. Another 19 were injured. None of Colin's victims were black. As they placed him in the squad car, the police remarked how calm and collected Colin looked. According to their investigation, Colin Ferguson had been planning the shooting for about a week, with a notebook scribbled with reasons for his actions, all of which had to do with racism and his supposed uprising. He called out specific people he felt slighted by, including Governor Mario Cuomo, Reverend Herbert Dodder, C. Vernon Mason, Calvin Butts, and, quote, corrupt black attorneys at the law office he had been threatening, claiming they refused to help him and attempted to steal his car. He claimed he waited to start his rampage until they were outside the New York City limit out of respect for the outgoing mayor, David Kinkins, and police commissioner, Raymond W. Kelly. Colin Ferguson was arraigned for his crimes on December 8, 1993, and did not enter a plea. He was held without bail, and on the 11th, his lawyers made moves to get him a psychiatric evaluation in an attempt to use the insanity plea. Seven days later, Colin asked the judge to let him replace his attorney with a man named Colin A. Moore, who had a reputation for pursuing allegations of racism in the criminal justice system. He offered to represent him for free and announced he would be seeking a change of venue to Brooklyn, where he believed Colin would receive a fair trial, arguing that Nassau County had a, quote, severe underrepresentation of African-Americans on the jury panel. Later, Colin Moore withdrew his offer to represent Colin Ferguson, citing conflict he chose not to disclose. Shortly after, Dr. Alan Reichman, the psychiatrist who had interviewed Colin, reported that he may be feigning his mental illness, claiming he lacked the detailed and highly focused nature of a person actually suffering from paranoid delusional thinking. On January 1st, 1994, a report was issued that concluded Colin was suffering from a paranoid personality disorder, but was still competent to stand trial. On January 19, 1994, a jury handed over a 93-count indictment against Colin Ferguson. On March 1, 1994, William Kunstler and Ron Kuby, law partners known for representing unpopular clients, announced that they were going to be handling the Ferguson case. The next month, a judge sought a gag order on all of the lawyers involved in the case after hearing that Kunstler and Kuby were making statements to the media that might be inadmissible during the trial and could influence potential jury members. They responded saying that they would have no problem finding 12 unbiased jurors and that their statements were simply a drop in the bucket compared to the pariah the media was making Colin out to be. The gag order was rejected, but the lawyers were given a warning. While in custody awaiting his trial, Colin began complaining about his treatment behind bars, claiming the corrections officers were attacking him with milk crates and fire extinguishers and were depriving him of the necessities like soap and deodorant. 
his lawyers requested the United States Department of Justice to intervene to ensure his safety. That March, Colin was attacked by a group of inmates while returning to his cell. Kubi called the attack racially motivated and alleged that jail officials and corrections officers knew about the attack and idly stood by. As a result, five inmates were charged with second-degree assault. Things continued to escalate, egged on by a team of lawyers who seemed to instigate in already intense situations. Lawyers who, as the trial approached, sought to try an innovative tactic of defense, something they were calling, quote, black rage. They claimed that Colin Ferguson was driven temporarily insane by the racial prejudice he dealt with on a daily basis and could not be held criminally liable for his actions, even if the killings were proved to be at his own hands. The term black rage was first proposed by psychiatrists in 1968, who argued that the damage caused by living in a racist, white supremacist society can psychologically damage a person and force them to act abnormally likening it to battered women's syndrome and PTSD. It was an interesting tactic, one that made sense to many, but not everyone was convinced Colin fit the mold for this relatively unheard of psychological term. The lawyers, of course, told the media about their new defense and were criticized by the judge for speaking about their tactic with the press prior to the trial starting, stating, quote, Mr. Kunstler may have many talents, but until he receives his medical degree with a specialty in psychiatry, these types of conclusions should best be left for medical experts and the triers of the facts. Then, Collins started to claim that he was not the man responsible for the shooting at all and began refusing to meet with the psychiatrist hired by his attorneys. He claimed he was getting a message straight from God and that it was he who told Colin to destroy all those who opposed him and his conspiracies. Because of this, Kunstler and Kubi asked the judge to reconsider his level of competency. Colin appeared before a judge on August 20th, 1994 and rejected his lawyer's efforts to have him declared mentally unfit, diving into a rambling diatribe and ignoring the judge when he tried to interrupt. The judge refused the request, citing the original report, and ended the proceedings. When he did, Colin tried to continue his rant and had to be placed in handcuffs and forcibly removed. Kunstler was later accused of staging the situation to make Colin seem less competent and sway the case. On September 20th, 1994, Kunstler and Kubi filed a notice that they would pursue the insanity defense despite the objections from their client. All the while, Colin remained steadfast that he did not commit the shootings and proposed acting in his own defense. A third hearing was held to determine competency, and on December 10th, Colin was, for the third time, determined fit to stand trial. As the trial finally went underway, Colin cross-examined the police officers that arrested him and the victims he shot, argued that the 93 counts he was charged with would have only been 25 if the year was 1925, admitted to bringing a gun into the train, but claimed he fell asleep and it was another man named Mr. Sue who began the firing, and claimed that he found another man willing to testify that the government implanted a computer chip into Colin's head, but at the last minute decided not to call this man to the stand. This man's name was Raul Diaz, a parapsychologist from Manhattan who claimed during a press conference on the courthouse steps that he saw an oriental man press a chip into Colin's head just before the attack and claimed he was, quote, lasered out by a remote control device. 
The whole thing was a media circus. But because the O.J. Simpson trial was happening on the West Coast, the televised trial got very little airplay. Colin continued in his bizarre cross-examinations, referring to himself in the third person and asking pointless questions that were not geared towards rebutting the testimony, and even requested that President Bill Clinton come in and speak in his defense. Colin even sought to question himself on the stand, but in the end, decided not to do so. He claimed he had numerous experts that could prove his innocence, all of which said they were too afraid to take the stand, and said that the killing of Jeffrey Dahmer in prison was a prelude to an attack planned by the Jewish Defense League to kill him. When it was all said and done, Colin Ferguson was convicted on February 17, 1995, of the murder of six individuals and the attempted murder of 19 others. He was given 315 years and eight months to life in prison, and will not be eligible for parole until 2309. After his conviction, Colin was put in the position to argue in appealant briefs that he had incompetent counsel, meaning he was arguing if he himself was a good enough defense. While behind bars, Colin got into a fistfight with inmate Joel Rifkin over who had the more heinous crimes. As of 2019, Colin Ferguson is still behind bars. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to what terrible thing happened on December 8th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.